Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, we're talking with Reverend Roland Stringfellow. A native of Fort Wayne, Indiana, he currently resides in Detroit, where he's a senior pastor and teacher at Metropolitan Community Church of Detroit. He and his partner, Jerry Peterson, moved to Detroit from Oakland, California in 2014. In 2016, he completed his doctoral thesis. His studies have often had a focus on challenging state-sponsored religious freedom legislations that cause harm to LGBT individuals and families. He's a licensed minister, not only with the Metropolitan Community Church, but also with the United Church of Christ and the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries. In 2010, he directed a national African-American faith community outreach, the Umoja Project, working with pastors and lay leaders in the black church to provide pastoral care for gay and lesbian members of their congregations. In 2011, he was honored to be elected with the most number of votes to become a Grand Marshal in the San Francisco Pride Parade. In 2012, he expanded his outreach by having several articles published in the Huffington Post. Dr. Stringfellow has been consulted by media outlets regarding his work on marriage equality and the role of people of color and communities of faith in this local, state, and national debate. He has conducted multiple workshops on the topics of race, religion, class, sexuality, and gender identity. Reverend Stringfell, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us here on Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. It's indeed a pleasure being here. You know, I mean, and you have to tell me, like, sometimes I'll probably slip and just call you Roland because I yeah, often absolutely. jokingly tell I jokingly tell people that you are my reverend doctor friend because yes, yes, you fall yes. under. And, 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 and your brother as well. <laughs> and brother, that's right. That's right. I mean, you know, because you've grown to be that. Um, so you are from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Where, as a kid, did you ever visit Detroit and say, like, oh, that's a cool place? Or, you know, was Detroit like a far-off place? Did you ever envision yourself ending up here? Never did I envision myself living here. Um, I was familiar with it. I came up with my family back when I was a teenager to visit the Motown Museum and and the uh, Wright Museum of African-American Art. And that was really about it. Um, ironically, uh, after... I graduated with my Masters of Divinity, uh, and that was in California. A good friend and I 
wanted to live somewhere else besides California, someplace more um, or less <laughs> expensive. And he made a list of three cities. I made a list of three cities in Detroit made on got on his list so i came to visit and it was a gray cold day and he was interested in attending wayne state and i that particular day just did not make an impression on me so i'm like oh i do not want to be in detroit <laughs> when it came time for me to uh look for a job change i did a nationwide search and had a variety of um, interviews in like new york and chicago and um, none of those panned out, but I continued, continued my search, and lo and behold, the job uh, announcement for the executive director for the Ruzella Center popped up, and I was unfamiliar with the um, Ruzella Center at that time. So as I looked over the um, skills that were required, I recognized I did not have those skill sets, but my husband did. <laughs> and so I pass it on to him, and he took a look at it. And again, I think you know Detroit, like Oakland, California, where where we resided, is a city that has so many stereotypes, you know, and um, you know many of which are not true, but you know some of them are based in fact. But um, it being a predominantly African American city, he's like, hmm, and him being white, he's like, well, what do you, what would this um, institution want to do with me. It's a black <laughs> clientele, black you know, board of directors, you know, predominantly black staff, and, you know, and here, here I come in as middle-aged white guy. So I said, well, why don't you let them make their mind up, for, you know, rather mm-hmm. than you? So he applied and, you know, eventually got the job, and, and here we are. We're, we're in Detroit. And so um, – and I, I actually I left out a, an important piece of that story because right before I found that job announcement, we he and I also, Jerry and I also were making a list of places that we would not mind going to. And Detroit was on that list. So at mm-hmm. that time, I said, you know, I wouldn't mind moving to Detroit because it's close to Fort Wayne, Indiana. And at that time, my mother was, you know, um, failing in her health and I wanted to be closer to her. So I said, well, you know, I wouldn't mind. You know, it's, it's, it's an up-and-coming city, and by that time I had heard, you know, much more positive um, uh, accounts uh, coming from the city. And having not been since, you know, you know for several years, it's like we, I, I would not mind giving this a shot. And so when this job opportunity came, it's like, well, I guess we're going to Detroit. And we have not regretted it one iota and absolutely love living in the city proper. And um, we're close to the Avenue of Fashion, which is Livernois Avenue. And mm-hmm. uh, the city is, you know, putting some efforts to really revitalize this area. So we are excited being here. You know, I think it's interesting how you said that, how you had come up and you had visited uh, No Town Museum and the Museum of African American History. And often, mm-hmm. you know, I've been there, and they say how often they have more visitors of people from outside of Detroit than they had had in Detroit. And, you know, <laughs> when I think of Fort Wayne and I think of Detroit, and all, I think of us as Midwesterners, okay? Absolutely. But what, was, what do you feel is the difference between your upbringing in Fort Wayne and that Detroit that you visited and maybe even the Detroit that you see now? Is it still 
would you still define it as Midwestern or has your definition of Midwestern sort of changed? Actually, I think it's solidified even more so <laughs> living here mm-hmm. in Detroit. I, I, I definitely think and feel that uh, Detroit is a very quintessential uh, Midwestern city for this reason. Um, having lived on the West Coast uh, for eight years, um, you know, obviously every region has its own um, quirks and qualities and so forth that, you know, that are just very unique to that area. When I had the opportunity to move back to the Midwest, there were certain things that after we arrived here in Detroit that I had realized I had forgotten. And Mm -hmm. one of the things is this, like cookouts and Mm -hmm. holiday parties and just, you know, you know, just when, when, not saying that other areas don't do that, but in the Midwest, it's, it's one expected. And two, if you receive an invitation, you are expected to show up. This is not a, you know, come if you feel like it. It's like, no, 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 no. If I'm giving you the invitation, you must be there. And so <laughs> it, 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 it's that type of connection with community and with your neighbors where, you know, that, that I had missed. I think being in California uh, and everything tends to be so spread out, you know, it, it wasn't uh, a big deal if you didn't make it because it's like, hey, you know, either traffic was, a, you know, a bear or, you know, my life is so fast paced and, you know, I just can't keep up with you. But, you know, and I'll see you when I see you. But mm-hmm. the Midwest, the connections and the kinship, I, th- that is something that I had greatly missed. And so that was one of the things I would share with my friends in California when they were somewhat dumbfounded that we were moving to Detroit. It's like, what? You're leaving, you know, all of this, California? It's like, <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> because, you know, again, it's, it's, it's um, you know, I, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, Oakland, and there was, and I, and I worked in Berkeley. I would say this often to my friends there, that there was something that I would label faux liberalism or fake liberalism. Mm-hmm. from a lot of the people who were there. And, and, and how I point, how, how I define that is when I was an assistant principal at, or vice principal rather, at Berkeley High School and would talk to parents about, you know, uh, opportunities for their kids. And, you know, and they would just, you know, almost like push other kids, not literally, but push other kids out of the way to put their, you know, child number one and, and would do it in very, racialized or classist ways. And then when you would call them out on it, you know, it's like, hey, 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 hey. And, you know, it's like, you know, this is wrong. This is, you know, even call it out as, you know, classist. It's like, well, I can't be, you know, classist. I can't be racist. I can't be homophobic. Why? Well, because I live here in Berkeley. <laughs> I live, I, I, you know, that, that there was something simply about living in that area that kind of protected them from doing that type of intro, deep introspection about their privilege. And mm-hmm. it just irked me. And it seemed like it was everywhere there. So that was like one of the things, let alone the cost of living. But to your question, going back to your question, being here in the Midwest, again, not that the Midwest does not have its issues or problems, but I think for myself, having grown up here and there's just a, a rhythm, there's an expectation that, that's very familiar to me. That I didn't mm-hmm. know, and so coming coming here, it was just you know um, 
is an old hat. You know, it's just very, very, very comfortable. And, like, I know the rules. I know the way around, if, if you will, just because of how people think and act and, and, and what their expectations are. You know, that makes so much sense to me, what you were talking about, because I know friends who are liberal and progressive, and, you know, and they figure because I live in this zip code, I live in this area, that, you know, well, you know, I'm liberal, I'm progressive, and they even want to deny that they have benefited from institutionalized racism that allows them to be in this area, and it's like not wanting to to look deeply into it. And like I said, when you bring it up to them, they're like, oh, no, you know. And I think that, that that is one of the things that often I tell people, like, you know, there's some things that you do recognize and you notice here and that willingness to talk more about, you know, mm-hmm. so, which I think, think is interesting. Um, little Roland back there in Fort Wayne, did you want to be, you know, did you always, feel that you were going to become a minister uh you know i t- i've talked to people and i talked to i'm trying to think i talked to some people said you know like well we would have these shows and i would pretend and my dolls would be the congregation and you know and i'd line them up and i'd preach them did you have when you were a young man when you were a kid did you feel that you had the calling or when did you recognize that this was what you wanted to do yeah, yeah, that's an interesting story. So, the short answer is no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but the more detailed answer is I, I, I had always been a zealous kid when it came to the things of God, and literally, like when I was in like late elementary, early middle school, I was inside the house reading the Bible while my you know friends were outside playing. And just, you know, and obviously that was just very unusual. And I mean, and I think I even recognize it as unusual, but I just had a very, you know, strong, you know, pull, you know, to, to, to the things of God. And this whole thing of being saved, you know, one of, you know, be saved and sanctified. And I remember, again, this is now late middle school, maybe even early high school, I got to a place where actually no. In fact, I remember the day because I, I wrote it. I was I was twelve. I was twelve, and I wanted and needed to know if indeed I believed in God. And so I wrote a list of pros and cons. On one side <laughs> was the reasons why I believed, and the other reason the other list was why I did not. And even though my list of believing in God was longer, that still didn't do it. And then it occurred to me that there would not be anything tangible that I could, you know, just kind of like grasp to say, here's the reason why I believe in God. It's just that this is about faith, that, that you believe just because, you know. And, and for a lot, a lot of people who have not had that type of a conversion, that might be difficult to understand. But I think for those who have, you know, grown in faith and belief in, in God, that, that it makes perfect sense. It's, it's, and what it was, it was – God really appealing to my heart and my senses to say, you know, I am here and, and you know, I, I, I want you to take this, you know, this step of faith. And I did. And that's really, even though I was like baptized when I was, you know, really, really young and, you know, early, early elementary, it, I really kind of feel that it was, you know, middle school, high school, that's when I really came to a, believe it or not, believe it or not a more mature faith. Mm-hmm. Well, Growing up, I and going to college, 
I uh, was into uh, education and majored in special education at um, Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And so it was one night where, well, actually it was an occurrence that would happen uh, quite frequently where I would read scripture and then have a, 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 a knack for being able to explain like the story that I just read, like, like in a very um, e- easy, understandable way. Not, not that I was actually doing that, but like I would read a passage and then I would, you know, it, uh, then, then I would think like, oh, okay, I could explain it this way to explain to other people. And it just kept happening, you know. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think a whole lot about it, but one night I was in my, um, the lounge of my dormitory and finished studying and I pulled up my Bible and I started to read and it happened again. And because it was happening, happening frequently, I was really joking to myself. I was like, well, maybe I should be a preacher. Mm. And it felt like literal hands on either side of my shoulder and just like, yes. And I was so startled by that. I got up and I went back to my room, and it was so profound, I knew it was God. So I got mm. on my knees and just prayed, like, okay, if this is what you're calling me to do, then I will follow. But, you know, <laughs> I, I need you to go with me. And that was the case. And so at that point in time, I was attending uh, uh, AME Church, African Episcopal Methodist Church. Um, all right, switch those two around. African Methodist Episcopal Church in Bloomington. And told the pastor at that time, and he uh, encouraged me to become the youth minister for that church. And so we were driving around the campus, picking up students for, for church, and really that, that was my kind of big step into ministry. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the Baptist church, and so when I returned home to Fort Wayne, um, told my senior pastor there about my call, and I was uh, given a license to preach. So that was back in 1990. And so even though I accepted my call um, a year prior, I consider that marker of 1990 of when I started in my formalized ministry, which now mm-hmm. brings me to close to 27 years, well, 27 years in ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because when you tell that story and about that, that feeling, feeling that, and you know, and I've talked to other people who are in it. In fact, most recently I was talking to Dai Abdullah, and he was saying how that was like, you know, like, how am I going to do this? What should I do that? What should I do this? And that moment of like, sort of like hearing. And I know how you're saying like how at one point he said that by letting go of all of these, you know, well, here's my list, this is the pros, here's the con, that it, it made space for, for him to receive what he needed to do. And it sounds like that, that once you said like, wait a minute, okay, you know, it's like, you didn't need a burning bush. You were getting these taps. No, Roland, <laughs> Roland. That, that suddenly it was like, you know, okay, you know, I get it. This is what I'm going to do. And then it seems like you went into that in a really good way. It was like almost like you found your path. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, now to, um, I guess, to be clear about that, um, I didn't go immediately into formalized um, training to become Mm -hmm. a pastor. I continued and finished my degree in education 
and was a, um, a public school teacher uh, for quite some time while I was volunteer clergy at my Baptist church and um, then went back to school and got a master's degree in uh, counseling, school counseling, and went in that direction for a while. After that degree was when I decided that I wanted to um, get more formalized ministerial training. So I, got, I received an MA from a school in Indiana. It was about uh, an hour north, kind of on your way to Chicago from, mm-hmm. uh, from Fort Wayne. And so um, received that. And then at the same time, was uh, after after I received that degree, was really beginning to deal with, and at that time I would say struggle with my sexuality, and I got to a place where, and and I and when I need to clarify, and I share this all the time, it, I wasn't at a place where I felt like I was living a duplicitous life, where you know I'm preaching one thing but then living a you know a secret life or a DL life, if you will, that mm-hmm. I was very, again, zealous to use that word again, about wanting to please God. And I knew that I had, you know, uh, same gender attraction, but did not want to act upon it. In fact, there's a particular passage of scripture that the apostle Paul refers to about the thorn in his flesh. Mm-hmm. And that was something that he would pray to God over and over to remove, but God's response was that my grace is sufficient for you. And mm-hmm. the answer was no. So that's how I categorized my sexuality, was that this was my thorn in the flesh. And um, dated women, I was dating women around and got very serious with one young woman to the point where we had talked about marriage and literally it was about to um, go ask her parents' hand, you know, for marriage. Very, very traditional, you know. <laughs> and so, um, but before that happened, I recognized that I needed to share this, you know, part of my life, if you will. Man, and I mean, it's not that mm-hmm. I wanted to be an active part of my life, but I just felt like, you know, I don't want to enter into a marriage with someone lying. And I would rather say it at the offset, you know, before we make a, you know, this type of commitment, just to say, you know, I feel this is, you know, something I've been struggling with. But, again, I uh, explained it as I just explained to you. Like, I felt this was kind of like a thorn in my flesh. But so, in any case, I shared that with her. And she was at a place where, and fortunately, she had enough wisdom <laughs> to say, like, uh, no brother. <laughs> mm-hmm, no brother. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. ended the engagement immediately right on the spot. And I was just devastated and like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, here I am trying to, you know, do the right thing and tell the truth and this happens. And But because of that rejection, that opened my eyes to other possibilities. In fact, um, there's a particular passage of scriptures that scripture that um, some of your listeners, particularly they are, um, have been you know reared in the church or is probably familiar with. It's one of the passages used to um, condemn uh, LGBT individuals, and it's from Romans chapter one, 
uh, 20, verse 26, 27, about man should not lie with man, you know, as with womankind, and, you know, it's an abomination kind of a thing. And so I remember just reading that particular passage over and over again and using it as a flog, just like whipping myself. Mm. Like, you know, like, you know, why can't you change? Why, you know, God, help me, help me, help me, help me. And then something occurred to me that never occurred to me before. This is from like reading this particular passage literally for years, was that reading that particular passage in its context, if you read the entire chapter, this is a chapter that talks about those who have no heart for God. And here are the deeds of those who have no heart for God. And then it occurred to me, it's like, well, wait a minute. I know I have a heart for God. It's like, you mm-hmm. know, I've had this heart for God for years. It's like, well, if this list is talking about those who have no heart for God, then this list does not describe me. This is not who I am. And it, was, it wasn't like an immediate like, light switch change, but a change began. And what it was was the presence of peace in my heart mm-hmm. that I had mm-hmm. never experienced before, believe it or not. And I've had like peaceful moments, but this was like a peace like I had not experienced before. It's, it's again, referring to scripture, this peace that passes all understanding that mm-hmm. really began to grow in my heart. And, I, and, 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 and what that peace was based in is that this is who you are. I did not make a mistake. Mm-hmm. And although this is something other people do, do not understand, this is who you are and who you've been created to be. And I'm like, God, is that right? It's like, is that me? Or is that, you know, the devil? Or is it, you know, like, what, what is this? Like, this can't be you. But how I knew in my heart that this indeed was the spirit of the living God speaking to me was, be- was because of that peace. And it continued to grow and manifest itself to the place where I recognize I am a gay man. You know, that was something mm-hmm. that I would not want to admit to. But when I got to this place to say, like, this is who I am, I began to um, really kind of explore what does it mean to be a gay, a gay Christian. And I really didn't have, at least at that point, much to go on. And I certainly did not think I could be a gay pastor because I had never heard of such a thing. So I ended up talking to my pastor of the Baptist church and conf- confessing and letting them know that this is true of me. And um, I know that you and your ministry is going in, in, in a direction that I no longer can travel with. And, you know, he loved me like a son, and I think even to this day still does, but it was, those are very difficult words for him to accept. And, um, again, I'm on staff there and, mm-hmm. and really did, you know, a lot of uh, tasks and duties, but we parted ways. So whereas some of my friends who were raised in the church and then after they accept themselves, uh, sometimes they're, they're shamed out of the church, they sometimes turn their back on the church and or God and that was not my experience. I ended up just leaving my Baptist church and going to another church and sat in the back and, you know, and didn't do much but 
they knew who I was. It's like, oh, you should come on up. You should preach, and, you know, you should do more. I'm like, oh, no, no. Left that church, went to a huge church where I could really blend in. But that literally lasted just so long and came to the attention of that, of that minister. He said, you know, oh, you should, you should come preach and do more. And I, I, I didn't know what to do with, do with myself mm-hmm. at that point. And I just really was kind of hiding and running at that point until um, a friend of mine invited me to, and this is a, a gay friend of mine, invited me to attend the um, National Gay and Lesbian Task Force Creating Change Conference. And this mm. particular year, it was being held in um, Portland, Oregon. And so I, I went, didn't tell my family, <laughs> but, uh-huh. but I went, flew across country. And it was there that I attended a workshop on gay Christianity. As the person was presenting, he was a student at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. And I spoke with him afterwards, and, and we were talking, and he said, oh, yeah, you can come to this school and get your Master's of Divinity, which is the professional degree for, many, for most ministers. You can get mm-hmm. your Master's of Divinity with an emphasis on LGBT ministry. And my head exploded. Just like, wow. what? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, oh, my God. And, and, you know, really that was kind of like the um, beginning of my new calling and understanding mm-hmm. that God had indeed called me to be a gay minister. And here was a place yeah. that, where I got a, a scholarship to attend the school to, to do that work. You know, I mean, I think that that's just often like what you're supposed to do, that message was there. And, and, you, and once you, you accepted and you saw it, the doors opened to, for you to walk through. And as I listened to you talk, I mean, and I've been reading, you know, I was reading, I'm trying to think what the name of it, well, I can't think of the name of it this book that they're talking about language and everything, and how the Bible was used not only to oppress us, but it also liberated us. Because initially there were only, the only sections that they wanted us to learn, to read, were the parts that supported our oppression. But as we became able to read and understand so much more, there is the tool for liberation. And it sounds like, you know, that's what, when you, something somebody said read the whole chapter read the whole thing and I can see how often I'll go to things and I hear people who talk about the harm that they've heard in their church and they're still suffering from that pain and to have someone who has gone to that and said but wait read the whole chapter read in the context and then how that that it wasn't like if you read that and you say, oh, it's just like, well, if you're going to interpret it, you're going to be doomed to, you know, hellfire and brimstone. You read the whole thing, listened to that voice, and another door opened to show how you were supposed to minister. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, what you just said uh, puts, in, puts in mind for me one of the strategies that I use as I work with um, African-American Christians who are wanting to understand this whole thing of LGBT inclusion and welcome in the church. Like how, how is that even possible, you know, or, or how can I do this and still remain, keep my integrity in check in terms of what I believe the Bible teaches. And I said, well, here's a, here's a good way, and this is, relates to what you just said. 
is I, 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 I then hold, hold a Bible in my hand, and I say, is this the last will and testament of a God who is dead? Mm. If so, just like any other will, the will is not enacted until the person has, is, has died. Then when you enact that will, no word of that document can be altered. It's, 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 it's basically you know, fixed in time. And so thus, when you read it, the Bible, um, you know, it's like, well, that's what it says. It's right there, black and white, black and white. Well, yeah, you can, you can approach the Bible that way. Or is the Bible a living, breathing document of a, of a God who is alive, who continuously speaks brand new things to the people who, who, who engage with it? And this is not me trying to say, you know, oh, you know, your, inter- your interpretation is your interpretation, mine's my inter- interpretation. But to say how two people, or let's say like five people, can read the exact same passage of Scripture and walk away with a message that is tailor-made for their circumstance in that time. And it's the same way when the preached word happens. You can go to a church and, you know, people say, wow, that message was made exactly for me. It was spoken just for me. The you know, pastor must have known something. And the pastor doesn't know anything. <laughs> what mm-hmm. the pastor is doing is just simply being a vessel in which the living God speaks to and through to the heart of the listener. And that's the same way that Scripture uh, is, you know, works. And so this is how I can read that whole chapter of Romans 1 and say, like, oh, my gosh, I, I, I have something that is life-affirming, life-giving to me. Whereas if I'm reading Scripture and all I'm reading is about doom and gloom and oppression and heaviness and everything else, then that's not the proper interpretation. It really is not. And even to your point earlier about how Scripture has been used in the past to oppress people, that's a misappropriation of God's Word. That God's mm-hmm. Word is, at its core, liberating. It's freeing. And it makes the heart light. It doesn't make it heavy. And so if anyone is reading a particular passage and it's making them heavy, it's like, well, again, as you said, read the whole chapter. Read it in context. What is it actually saying and meaning to you in your, in, 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 in your circumstance? Because the intelligence in which we call God knows who we are, knows our circumstance, and can speak directly to our situation to give us that word that we need that will liberate, that will free us. Okay, well, we're going to take that first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. 
For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Reverend Roland Stringfellow. You know, creating change to me is just, it has done so much. It has literally creating change to the point where uh, to bring in that conversation of faith and the work that you're able to do because we, many people in the LGBT community are people of faith. It's very diverse faith, but they're very, they're people of faith. I mean, you know, it's, it's really how, I mean, when you've been down so much and you're, and you have these things happening to you, that's what, what helps you keep going. For the longest, I mean, there was a time when in LGBT politics, you know, they didn't want to talk about faith other than to say, oh, those churches have treated us bad. And we went there and they bashed us. And when you went to uh, on the West Coast, and you went to the Pacific School of Religion, it sounds like that, that that school is helping us reclaim what is ours. I mean, you, you can't, to be gay doesn't mean you have to give up being faith. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and you are speaking truth when it comes to the welcome of people of faith into the LGBT community, which has not always been positive. What, what comes to mind for me is back when we were fighting for marriage equality in the state of California and challenging Proposition 8, um, there were a good group of us throughout the state who were clergy, who were or, 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 or religiously um, minded individuals and, um, you know, the, the, even in non-Christian traditions who would show up to many of these planning and organizing meetings to challenge the, the, um, the um, Prop 8. And they would look at us like we had two heads. And, mm. and oftentimes what that was based in is either they looked at us as people who were um, – who, who, who were being um, deceived by this Christian message. He's like, you know Christianity is not for us. And why, so why, why are you, you know, doing this? You, know, you almost look like a clown coming in here with your clergy collar on or your stole that you're wearing. And so because they, and, and for many people's minds, the two were, were, were in, you know, not compatible, which, by the way, is the message that, um, many within the Christian church who are very conservative want us to believe, <laughs> want us to believe that mm-hmm, the two are not mm-hmm. compatible. And so when you have uh, LGBT people agreeing with that message, you're just you know, really accepting that lie. The second is that um, you know, not, not only were we kind of silly or naive for believing in God, but it's also that you know, if, if they said, okay, well, fine, you can show up, but, you know, do you have to wear that? You know, talking mm. about the collar or the stole. You know, you can you just, just show up because we don't want to um, antagonize other Christians and, you know, and, and have them feel like we're trying to appropriate, you know, their faith. 
it's like their faith. <laughs> what about mm-hmm. our faith? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and literally, it took, um, I would say, you know, years to try to get the attention of organizers who really, really you know, believe like, no, 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 we we understand this, we got it. Well, now here we are now here with post marriage in terms of you know the Supreme Court's decision. We have this new enemy, which is religious liberty, religious freedom, and these laws that um, are used to misinterpret um, what's you know what's what's on the books, and trying to um, use these laws of in terms of a person's individual religious conviction should not be um, trampled upon by someone else's quote-unquote freedom. So I, I, if, if I'm a Christian and my, my interpretation of Christianity says homosexuality is wrong or gender variance is wrong, that's my belief, and you should not try to come in asking me for services if it goes against my belief. And we're like, wow. <laughs> and, so uh-huh. it, it, and so now those who we work with recognize we have to talk about religion. We have to bring in issues of faith and, 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 and um, you know, traditions uh, to, to the table. Because if we don't, they're going to continue to beat us at this game. And for many of us who have thought long and hard about a um, – religion or faith that is not oppressive and how to articulate it to people who are genuinely struggling with this question about, but, you know, my faith shouldn't be trampled upon. Like, absolutely, it should not. But your faith should also not be used as a license to discriminate against someone else. And how do we go about having dialogue rather than just get into an argumentative debate with someone? And that's the difference is trying to create those dialogues with people. Now, you know, you're also a black man. And I know mm-hmm. that during all these, these, I mean, and I know that you've heard it, I have had during the whole marriage debates and all that in here in Michigan, I have had mm-hmm. my white progressive, often gay friends come up to me and say, what are you going to do about those black churches? And I'm going <laughs> like, you know, okay, and I don't have a collar, you know, <laughs> and I'm going like, well, as a matter of fact, I'm Catholic, and what are you going to do about that church? But, you know, <laughs> here you are, okay, you're in a group that's crossing denominations, you're speaking up for it, but you also, it's like they have made that black church that bugaboo, you know. So did you find that sometimes even within that group that sometimes it was like, well, Roland, those are your peeps. Go talk to them. You know, did you ever feel that? And what's, what's your pushback? I mean, because it's like one minute they want us all to be gay, but then another minute it's like, oh, no, but you got to put your black hat on to fight that. <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, exactly. Um, but, but my approach to it is, is slightly different because um, – is something that, in a sense, I've specialized in about how to have these dialogues within the black church because what I was finding when I would go to particularly national strategy meetings around marriage uh, or just even just LGBT equality in general, that 
several people would say, okay, when you're talking to various audiences, here's what you say. You know, when you're talking to Latino audiences, use these type of words. Here, here, here are the talking points, if you will. When it comes to African American audiences, you know, stay away from the civil rights movement. Just stay away. Don't even bring it up because they don't want to hear about it and they, they won't listen to you and they'll discredit you. So, but I'm listening to this. I'm like, well, no. We definitely need to talk about the civil rights movement because this is a civil rights issue. And I realized that myself being authentic um, with my voice, meaning not, I'm not trying to come in as an agent of a seminary or, or, or institution to try to you know, you know, change your mind about marriage directly, but it's like let me speak to you as a member of our community, of the black mm-hmm. community that there is kinship between you and I, even though I've never met you, even though your politics and your theology is incredibly conservative, there's still a kinship between you and I, brother. Mm. And as we are talking, I need to share with you about um, uh, how um, there's a, there is a direct correlation between what happened in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s to, you know, gay liberation and LGBT equality of today. And using the words of, of, of uh, Mandy Carter, which I know you know, just, you know, mm-hmm. powerful African-American lesbian, and she, you know, talks about no one owns a movement. You know, the, the, the messages that are there are, you know, open for everyone to, to, to engage in. And to say, to say that um, LGBT people were not a part of the LGBT movement is to say that there weren't any, you know, it's, it's wrong and short-sighted, that there were LGBT individuals, in particular the LG part, that were, who participated in um, marches and lunch counter demonstrations just like everyone else, and they got the dog sicked on them and so forth, let alone not even talking about Bayard Rustin, but mm-hmm. to also go into this whole thing, uh, and this is one, word, one thing that she said I absolutely love, that um, James Byrd, a black man who was dragged from the pickup truck in from Texas, and Matthew Shepard, this young gay white man who was, you know, hung from, you know, this barbed wire until he died, um, are two examples of how hatred knows no boundaries, you know, that, mm-hmm. that it's evil no matter what group or class they're a part of, you know, black or gay, that, you know, uh, bigotry is an equal opportunity disease. And so those are types of messages that I think could and should be stated more so by African Americans to our kinfolk because then they, they'll, they'll listen a little bit more as opposed to, um, you know, another white liberal coming in to try to come into our community to tell us how we should think and believe and behave is, you know, um, you know I'm going to look at you with, with suspicion. But me being a black man, so, well, you know what my dog is in this fight. fight. Mm-hmm. And we're talking mm-hmm. about um, – strengthening the African-American family and community, that this is something that um, when we're talking about um, kicking your child out of the house because they've come out of the closet, that is, that's the thing that really, you know, uh, you know us, um, weakens the black community and the black family. And those are the things that we need to really address. And um, that is one of the reasons why I believe my um, work with the Emoja Project has been very um, successful. 
you know, I think I think that how important it, I mean, and I know it is that, you know, and I often tell people, you know, we wear all our hats, and you have to, to know all of that and not abdicate it because I know that when we had our, our marriage fight here, and I remember going in and thinking like, okay, well, this will be okay. These are my people. And it was like, well, right before they're ready to start to shout, crucify me, <laughs> I had a, a lady who was in the audience said, well, wait a minute. I don't understand this gay stuff, but I do understand that that woman comes in our community, and she was involved with us helping clean up our playground so our kids can play. So let's talk about, like you said, the black family and the black community. And I think that that's why it's so important that not that, no, we're not going to be going in there to, you know, say you must accept us as being gay to talk about that we didn't give up our black gay card our black card just because we're gay and what would experience is the same as everything and that we have to lift up our whole community. And when, and you know, and as you lift up your whole community, you understand that equality is equality is equality. And you can understand, you know, that there are these other things that are, are not safe and right for us. So important that you're able to go into that place and reconnect that like you go in and say like, Hey, I got that. You know, you're not preaching to them from the point of I'm a gay man and my struggle as a gay man. No, you're speaking to I'm your brother. And I think that that's so beautiful that you said that, my brother. That is, I think, the key strategy for anyone. You don't have to be a, um, a particular scholar like I am and, and around, around this issue, is that if you're talking to mama, you're talking to grandmama, you're talking to the preacher, someone who wants to pretend as if they no longer know who you are, now that they know more about, about who you are, it's, it's, it's also the remind, reminding them, it's like, but you know me. You know, mm. you, 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 maybe you're choosing not to see me now, but you do know me. Isn't it more important for us to be together than apart? And oftentimes, you know, and, and, and for some people who may be listening right now might say, like, well, no, you know, some, some people feel that it is better to, to, be, to be apart. And that's, I think, a really even short-sighted way of looking at those who simply don't understand this issue because uh, we just assume, you know, they're just homophobes or they're just, you know, Bible-thumpered people and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's what, what matters the most. But actually what, do, what does matter the most, and this is really what it comes down to, is parents or preachers will approach us from an attitude of tough love. They'll, 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 from, from their standpoint, they don't, want to see, they don't want to see us hurt or harmed because they do recognize we are part of the family, we are part of the community. And sometimes it's like, okay, if I withhold something from you, whether it's like, you know, you know, membership to the family, membership to the church, or, you know, or keeping you away from this or that, that they may feel like, oh, we will repent and wake up and say, oh, what was I thinking? Yeah, I, I was goofy. I was silly for believing, you know, that I, you know, am attracted to the person of my same gender. And, you know, yeah, you know, bang your head like you need a V8. And, you know, uh-huh. and then you, 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 you turn back around. That's what their hope is. You know, it's not so much to say that, their motivation is to kick us out, to, you know, um, have us 
to be shamed or anything else like that. I mean, now, now there, there are certain people who are on the extreme of that spectrum who that is what they're trying to do because I think they have more going on with them <laughs> than, than anything mm-hmm. else. But, but for the vast majority of individuals who, you know, will say or do something that is, quote, unquote, harmful to, you know, their child, you know, whether it's an adult child or a young child, I really believe that's what they are believing and thinking is that this is like if, if, if I um, say something to you that, that might wake you up or snap you out of this, you know, this silly thinking. But how you then combat that is to really say, mm-hmm. you know, you've, you've raised me well. You've trained me well. This is what I said mm-hmm. to my own pastor. I said to my mother. And, you know, when my mother's like, this can't be right, this can't be right, I said, Mama, look at, you know, again, very religious woman. I said, examine the fruit of mm-hmm. my life, mm-hmm. and you tell me what you see. And if, if there is truly something in my life that you feel is doing you harm or someone else harm, even myself harm, go ahead and, 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 and point it out to me. But for me, this isn't um, – anything that I really feel like I am simply choosing because I want to be rebellious against God. But this is me doing exactly what you taught me, to live in spirit and in truth, and to live in my true authenticity. God, you know, cherishes those who live in, you know, in in, in authenticity rather than a lie. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to continue to put on a, a, a persona that does not fit who I am any longer. You know, with this, I mean, many people say, well, okay, well, we've got marriage equality. And, I mean, we've come, we've come as a, a society, we have come somewhere. I mean, there are still people, like you said, who are on the far end, who they're going to see a gay couple and they're just going to go, ah, and there's still people who are going to do what they're going to do. But even, and there, but some would say, well, you know, your job should have gotten easier. But I see in some ways, hasn't your job gotten harder? Because, you know, especially now, because, you know, everyone's talking about where this Christian nation and this Christian, that your job has gotten harder because you've gotten over the big hurdle. That, that to say that not only can a couple get married, but how is their life in the community? How are we supporting their family? How are we supporting these children who are out here going to school and might not have school lunches, you know, how are we supporting someone who might not get um, employed or, or our elders and our elders, whether they're gay or everything, you know, are our community's problem. So do you feel that your work is harder now or what's the direction that you see you're being called to take it? You know, to be honest with you, where I am now with my work, because up until a couple of years ago, um, I felt like all I was doing was hustling, meaning I was like mm. going to and fro across the country doing these workshops. And I got to a place where I, I recognized I need to pass on this training to others mm-hmm. because I'm not the only brilliant person who's out there. I'm not the only person who can have connection and relationships with other people. So now what I do is hold training for trainers Mm. and teach them what I'm doing. And so what we are now finding is that 
even bringing up these conversations, I think is a tad easier from, 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 from this standpoint from when I began. One, because marriage equality is so out there and it is so prevalent. And some of these ministers are very concerned that this you know, female couple is going to ask them to marry them. You know, whereas it, it may have been okay if we're in a don't ask, don't tell relationship. But now you're asking me to, you know, affirm your your relationship before God? Oh, I don't know if I can do that. And and so what, what the Emoja project does is we host uh, primarily closed door meetings with African American clergy. Meaning we don't take pictures, we don't post it on Facebook, we don't, you know, publish uh-huh. on the list of people who come. But it's 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 a time to for these individuals to have a you know honest and open dialogue going going again not 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 debate but dialogue around these topics from a theologically strong theological standpoint and for them to say okay you know can I ask this question or even can I even share my fears with mm. you in fact I just did a workshop last week in um, Olivet at Olivet College. And again, not saying who all was there, but that was just the location. And I showed a video of lesbian household, African American lesbian households, as they are dealing with um, the church and faith. And after it was all over, one of one of the participants just went off. He, I mean, he was silent through the whole, and I could tell he was uncomfortable throughout the whole thing. But that was his breaking point because now. I've talked about children, and I've mm. brought children into the equation. And we can he cannot, you know, stand by and say, you know, parents should, you know, raise their children this way because these children are impressionable and we need to, you know, protect them and, you know, like, you know, how, how, how dare I? And for some people, they were like, oh, my gosh, what do I do with this? But it opened the door, and I really just tapped into his passion for protection. And I said, you're right. So let's talk about the, 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 the ultimate thing you're talking about here is protection of children. And those children need to be protected. I said, and, and if indeed they're in a household with a mother and a father or a male and a female, and it's, you know, um, hostile or it's, you know, just toxic, that's not going to be good for the child. However, if it's two same-sex individuals, same-gender couples, and it's loving, it's supportive, it's encouraging, you know, that's far better than it simply having a man and a woman in the household. I said, this has been proven, even all the way to the Supreme Court. This has been proven. And, you know, we talked about that, and we were able to, again, have dialogue rather than me get upset and, you know, taking like, oh, my gosh, he's, you know, yelling. Well, yeah, sometimes we're going, to, we're going to have that, but what then do you do? Do you just simply say, okay, I don't want to have this conversation anymore, this dial, you know, this, you know, you know, this type of engagement, or do you, in a sense, stay with it? And that's what the training of trainer uh, workshops do: is teach other folks of how to of how to do this. Um, so yeah. 
But, you know, how powerful is that? I mean, you've got them in this room. I mean, and, with you know, it's like the no judgment zone. You've got them in there. They didn't have to do the perp walk where everybody's taking their pictures. They were able to come in this room and to have that. And to lay bare what they're saying because, you know, even though that he's saying it, I imagine that there's a part of him that's going like, I got to say this, and I know these people are going to now say that I'm a bigot and I'm a homophobe and all that, but he said it. And to just everybody to shut down and not saying everything is such a terrific opportunity missed. And, you know, all the conversations aren't going to be nice and pleasant and, and kumbaya moments, but what came out of it at the other end of it made it all worthwhile. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and again, what you just said is the same thing I just want to reiterate is that having the courage to stay within the dialogue and to, you know, just simply tell it from your perspective. Believe it or not, that has more power than it does trying to get into a Bible battle with someone. You don't have to know the scripture. You don't need to know what Romans chapter 1 or Leviticus or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other stuff. But if you know your story and you know why, you know, you have made the choices for yourself, it's hard to refute someone's testimony, you know, and, and, as I call it. And it's, it's you know, because I, I love to say we can transform others through our testimony, just simply saying, I know I believe in God. I know I love God. I know I don't know the scriptures very well, but I know my God. And I know how my heart has been changed and how freer I feel because of this. And you can say that to the, the pastor, the bishop, it doesn't matter. And, you know, they may scoff, but, again, it's your testimony. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to even say that our testimonies necessarily will, you know, turn the tide for some folks mm-hmm. because some people are going to be just steadfast in their position. But um, I think it plants a seed and I feel it's been good to, you know, like if, if the church of your childhood no longer serves you or accepts you, then I think it is, you know, your right and your duty to find a community that, that does, mm-hmm. where you can still be spiritually fed. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to take another short break, and then we'll be right back. We're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss that. You know, admitted that they had voted for Trump, and they're like, oh, you shouldn't even talk to them. And I was at a, an event, and there was a... A lovely little lady who, who came, first of all, she came to this event and admitted that she had not only voted for Trump but on one issue, and it was about abortion. And I told her, I said, well, you know what, we don't. We're not going to agree on abortion. And, you know, that's just it. I said, but, you know, there were kids in the room. I said, but, you know, I think we're both concerned about the world that these children are going to grow up in. And there was a moment that as she was talking about and her reasons why she had voted the way she did that 
part of me wanted to like that, you know, but it was like, okay, just sit with it. Just sit with it. Listen to her. Hear her out. Hear her heart. And then respond. And um, it seems like right now there's, there's a need for more of us to be able to do it. You might end up not only being able to train the trainers, but training your neighbors because what you, what you talked about right then is so important that sometimes we have to be able to know who we are, sit with it, and hear that other person's heart. Absolutely. And I'm going to make a confession now. Um, back in, you know, uh, who was it? I think it was Bush one, um, the, um, the George Herbert Walker Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I voted Republican. I voted for him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. He, the reason why was on that issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. And that was a time in my life when I was um, um, a big fun- fundamentalist Christian and listen to uh, Christian radio and Christian television, and, and the, the, the lines were so blurred in terms of politics and religion. It was like, you know, it was like it was the, they were just synonymous. If you are a Christian, then you are, you're voting Republican. You know, and, of course, that's still true today for, 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 for many people, not all people. And so, mm-hmm. and so I, I ran in those, that, that crowd. So... I definitely understand the logic behind it because you're voting on a morals base, you know, than I think than, than anything else. And um, <laughs> we could have a whole, a whole show just now, just right now, talking about Trump. But mm-hmm. I know that's, Thank that's you. not what we're here talking about. Uh, but, well, but, but, but we'll to, do that later. <laughs> right. But to your point is that. Um, I, I, I understand it because when it comes to issues of faith and your, you know, your, 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 your own personal religion, if you will, um, that's huge. That's huge. In fact, um, I had um, uh, some good friends of mine in California where one of the women, um, had, you know, the, the grandmother loved her and her, you know, same gender partner and, you know, would invite him over for Sunday dinner after church and mm-hmm. the whole nine and just like, you know, this is grandmama, you know, grandmama's, you know, just, you know, loves us. And then came the time for them to get married and they said, you know, grandmama, you know, we want to invite you to our wedding. And she just stopped and looked just like, oh, no, baby, I can't do that. It's like, I can't mm-hmm. go to hell for you. Mm-hmm. And she was straight up serious because mm-hmm. – you know, and, and for her, that happened to be the line that she could not cross was around marriage because her, her belief was marriage between a man and a woman. And, and, again, that was something that God would, you know, truly frown upon. And so someone's personal conviction, it is huge. It is definitely huge. And even as I go out to, you know, talk with and work with, you know, Christians around this topic of inclusion and welcome into the, into the church, it's not my intent directly to say I want to change your personal conviction per se, per se. because um, otherwise they can see that as me being manipulative and, you know, I think that that just kind of, you know, tears it down. So I think the alternative is to say, I'm not so much, don't want to change, but I want to add to, 
to your belief. Because you and I both agree in a God who created all humanity and the old passage that seems like every Sunday school child knows, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, you know, that he gave his only begotten son. And so if that is true, that God loved the world, what does that mean about people who aren't Christian? Mm. or who, you know, you know um, who, who don't adhere to your particular tenets. What do you feel God actually does to these individuals? And some really do have a hellfire and brimstone type of faith in God who, you know, God's going to smack you down and, you know, send you to hell. And, you know, and, 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 that's, that's, that, and that's a shame. <laughs> that's a shame mm-hmm. for those individuals. Mm-hmm. But even if, even if that's what grandmama believes, is to say that, you know, there, there, there are certain passages that do have resonance, even for very conservative fundamentalist Christians, which is about, you know, don't judge, let you be judged. And, you know, um, and um, um, one of my favorites from... First John chapter 4 about how can you say you love God who you haven't seen, but then say you hate your brother or your sister who you do see. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that there are ways to build upon a particular fundamentalist or conservative faith for them to say, well, yeah, I, be- I-, I believe in that. I-, I agree with that. It's like, great. So do I. And so, again, even though you may not understand or even accept who I am or, you know, this, this particular, you know, um, pers- you know, personality, is it still okay and right for you to turn your back on, to condemn, to withhold? Is that what you feel your God is calling you to do? Or is it just simply to say, okay, you know what, let me – you know, I, I disagree and I don't understand. So even if I just leave you alone, you know, that, 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 that might be the best thing. And I agree. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like, just don't say anything. Just be quiet. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that has been the victory as I've worked with very conservative pastors is that if they've been like really rabid around, you know, pounding the pulpit, you know, condemning people and so forth. And again, I I, I challenged them. It's like, why did we, and I can say we because I'm a clergy person also, it's like, why did we, and actually this kind of goes back to what you said at the very beginning of of our conversation. Like, why did, like, what was our call? Why why, Why did we become pastors, preachers? community caregivers, and I really like saying that, community mm-hmm. caregivers, because they really emphasize mm-hmm. the care. Why, why do we do this? And all, you know, invariably the answer is because we love people and we love God and we want to see people thrive. Okay, I agree with that. So if you are doing something that not only doesn't provide life for someone but turns them away from God, the God who you say called you to bring and help bring light to the people, how does that jive? How does that, how, how does that work? And, of course, it doesn't work. You know, and, and, you know for, for you to, you know, pound and say, but I've got to, you know, be faithful to what, what the word of God says, the word, the word. 
And I'm like, okay, you, you, you can still be faithful to the word, but do you have to repel people away from God to the point where they feel so despondent that they feel that God does not love them, God does not want them, God rejects them? Is mm-hmm. that what you've been called to do? And the answer is no. And so they w- m- probably will never be a champion for LGBT rights. But if they just simply say, okay, you know what, I hear that, and I'm just going to be quiet. And I say, amen. <laughs> just be quiet. Just be quiet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, and, and in many instances we've seen where LGBT clergy has stepped up and really been right there in the thick of things. And I think that from that attitude, from that way of doing it, have created change. Often the critique of the LGBT community is like, okay, you want us all to show up on your cause, but you're not there for the other cause. What do you see is the role of LGBT clergy on other issues like immigration, fair wages, you know, a lot of, even against war and the environment, do you, do you see a way that you have to have a voice in on that or, you know, maybe not be the one in the leadership, but to sort of say that we are part of this human community and these are issues that concern all of us? That is such a wonderful question because it is something that I have actually heard not only LGBT clergy say, but I've heard straight progressive clergy say the exact same thing, that, okay, here I am, I'm straight. And I've shown up for your issues on LGBT equality, whether it's, whether it's marriage or challenging harmful religious liberty laws or, you know, uh, or adoption bans, you know, against uh, gay and lesbian couples. I've shown up and I've spoken out. But now here I am trying to, you know, focus on immigration or, you know, the like, you know, the, all the other issues, and, you, and I can't find you. And so you're right. We have to be a multi-focused lens people rather than a single focus lens where we're just focusing on this one issue. And, 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 and in order for us to, uh, I think, have a, a valid voice of a leader in our community, we do have to show up. Now, now of course, it is difficult to be all things for all people, meaning you, you, you can't really show up for everything just because it's humanly not possible and we don't have the strength, you know, the bandwidth to to always do that. However, I would say that uh, within your realm of, of, of ability, what are the other issues besides, you know, equality for, you know, LGBT individuals can you show up for? Because when you're talking about economic justice, well, that's an LGBT issue. If you're talking about immigration, well, that's an LGBT issue, you know, you know or just even um, health care. You know, that's an LGBT issue. And so you can definitely show up and still carry, you know, the rainbow flag or banner, if you will, and to say, you know, e- even though I may not say LGBT, at, at, you know, as I'm protesting or as I'm speaking up or talking to a legislator, you know, by the fact that you're even there, you, you're still representing your interests. And, 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 I th- and I think it is good for people who are really into strategy or community organizing 
to really understand that because it is easy to just focus on your own one topic and try to raise money for that particular issue. But uh, you, you really are shoot, shooting yourself in the foot if you are just going to be single-issue focused. You know, I listen to you, and I mean, from from rolling in from Indiana, <laughs> yeah, and all the, your travels and the different things that you've done. I mean, I often tell people, you know, the average, I mean, and anybody, but particularly if you're black and you're black and you're gay and you've lived all these things, you know, we can't stay in our lane because our lane really is a multi-lane superhighway because we we. <laughs> have to go down these ways and navigating all our intersectionality is how we get to to the finish line and hopefully a lot take other people along the way how do you feel that all these intersections that you experienced from back there when you had that honest conversation with your then fiance and growing up you know and being that child that your mother made to going out to be in California, and Jerry told me that you two just really weren't California guys, and coming back here, how do you feel that these intersections influencing your life have impacted the work that you've done, and how do you feel they're going to impact what you, your future work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I look back over my entire lifespan, and I recognize that even my worst mistakes have been used for good, and I've, mm. where, where I've, I've used them as lessons. And the places in which I've been and traveled to, that, that has given me the voice and the articulation that I have today to um, speak up and to speak out and speak for, you know, other individuals. And so, um, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, eternally grateful that, you know, my fiance turned me down because that was not that was not going to be my path. In fact, if anything, I was following a path that someone else told me I should be on. Well, you're supposed to be married to a woman, and you're supposed to have these you know these children, and you know have that particular job, and you know you know and on and on and on. And if I you know was really even well, and I was honest with myself. That's why I told her <laughs> what I did because uh-huh. it, it was important to me even then to live in some type of authenticity. And so following that path of just saying, okay, I need to be true to myself, you know, it, and, 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 and I say this to people all the time that I don't advocate people always coming out of the closet because I don't know what your life circumstance, you know, actually is. I don't know if, like, if this means that you lose your job or lose your children, you know, or lose something, you know, per, per, per se, but here, here's what I think you need to strive for, is that when you rest your head on your pillow at night, do you sleep, go to sleep in peace, knowing that, again, you know, you're being true to yourself and um, you are um, comfortable in your own skin. Because I do believe, like, for example, wherever I go, I mean, I've, I've been out for quite some time, and, you know, uh, but I don't, Feel the you know the necessity to like I'm gay I'm gay I'm gay and wherever I go mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. I am who I am period and so thus I don't need to myself even come out all the time but I'm very comfortable within my skin and so if someone is going to ask me where I'm 
identified and like, well, absolutely. But for myself, I have accepted my calling, and I, and I know that this is distinguished from others. I have a call in my life to be not only out but very vocal about who I am because I recognize not everyone is going to have that same type of opportunity or, um, and I'm going to even say privilege, to be authentic, you know, mm-hmm. to be that authentic. And so how can I then be a representative for those who are voiceless or who, who, or who, who are not able to? Or, or to be an example for somebody to, to see, to, to, for them to, to see, like, wow, maybe I can come out of the closet, or maybe I can be more authentic, you know, with someone in my life and not continuously trying to live a duplicitous, you know, life. And so I've accepted that, you know, responsibility of that call, and um, it's just simply um, the direction in which I'm going. Mm-hmm. Well, we've come to the end of our conversation, Rowan. And, you know, like I said, you are Reverend, Doctor, friend, but most of all, brother. And I want to thank you for being and sharing your thoughts with me. Uh, Do you have anything you want to tell us about what's going on with the church, uh, the Moja project that we need to contact, connect with? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, I I would say that – I run into people all the time who simply want to um, know how to have these conversations, either with um, legislators or just even with mama and grandmama. Mm-hmm. And um, I can be, you know, contacted with the Metropolitan Community Church of Detroit, you know, at our website and our and my uh, email address is there, which is mccdpastor at gmail dot com. And I'll be more than happy to, you know, have that type of engagement. I've been uh, fortunate enough to do some more additional work at the Ecumenical Theological Seminary in Detroit to uh, teach a class based upon my Emoja work and um, uh, be advisor to students who are who are wanting to uh, do and learn how to become, you know, how to teach this to other people within their church context. Mm. So, um, so in, in any case, I, I feel like not only am I a pastor, but I'm a teacher, as you mentioned with my uh, title. And that's because I, I'm very, very passionate about sharing and helping other people to understand, uh, you know, these very complex issues, which many people simply don't talk about. It's, they're, they're oftentimes they're afraid to talk about. And in terms of my congregation, the Metropolitan Community Church of Detroit, uh, we are actually in the process of looking for a new home. Uh, where, where we currently are, uh, or reside, uh, the building is being sold, and we don't consider that a bad thing. We've been wanting to uh, venture out and to gain more space for ourselves, and so now we've been, in a sense, being uh, kicked out of the nest, but in a very loving, gentle way. Uh-huh. And so, um, so we're in the process of, of finding our new home. And so, um, and again, we really do see this as, as, as an exciting time because we feel that our ministry is continuously continuing to grow and to impact other people. And thus, I feel, and that's what I've been sharing with my folks, is that you know, we are just going to continue to pray that God leads us to our next home because it has already been selected. We just need to get on the same page with God. That's right. That's right. 
Well, Roland, again, thank you so much. Um, I will see you soon, sooner, yes. if not later. Uh, my best to Jerry. Yes. All right. And again, thank you on. for being, being our guest this week. So, again, it has been my, my pleasure. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. So, again, we've come to the end of another Collections by Michelle Brown. You can hear us every Thursday at 7 p.m. The shows are aired on Blog Talk Radio, but you can also listen to the podcast on iTunes, Stitchers, or SoundCloud. Join us next week when I'll be introducing you to another amazing individual who's living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. That's right here each week on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you. And have a good evening.